For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, why the Tucson Museum of Art is celebrating the legacy of gallery owner Elaine Horwich, and a spotlight session featuring singer, songwriter, and activist Charlie King. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. One of the current exhibitions at the Tucson Museum of Art is a very personal one for Chief Curator Julie Sassi. It's based on her new book, Southwest Rising, Contemporary Art and the Legacy of Elaine Horwich. The book itself is inspired by an important chapter of Sassi's life when she was establishing her own career in the art world of the 70s and 80s, working for Horwich. Next, Julie Sassi and others who knew and loved Elaine Harwich share her larger-than-life legend with producer Andrew Brown. We didn't take days off because we didn't want to miss anything. Vincent Price, Goldie Hawn, Diane Keaton, Arnold Schwarzenegger, on and on and on. These people would just be a steady stream through her gallery. So if you stayed home to do your laundry, you missed out. So we all kept working. I'm Dr. Julie Sassi, the Chief Curator at the Tucson Museum of Art. Elaine Horwich was a woman who arrived in Arizona in 1955, newly married to Arnold Horwich, who was part of a family business that uh, manufactured lingerie. They were from Chicago, and the family decided to open a new factory in Mesa, Arizona, and sent Elaine and Arnold, newly married, out to check it out to see if that was a viable space and location. They came out in the middle of the winter from Chicago and they smelled the air and they saw the palm trees and they said, we're sold. She was not actively in the arts. She had gotten a business degree from Northwestern and she was raising five kids, all of which will be here tonight. And um, so while she's raising kids, everything's fine. She's golfing, she's part of the country club set. And about 10 years in, Arnold Horwich read Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique and came home to her one night and said, I'm afraid you're going to leave me because you're going to be bored. You're too smart, you're too educated, and what I'm reading, you won't be happy. I need you to get a job. Well, she bristled at that. I bore your children, I clean your house, I cook your food, now you want me to get a job. But uh, she decided to go to New York with her husband when he had business and she spent her time in galleries and museums, came home one night and said, I know what I want to do. I want to open a business based on the Tupperware model selling art. And that's exactly what she did. It was her idea and she funded herself and she built this empire. By the time she was at her peak, she was selling millions of dollars of art. And in that time period, in the 70s and 80s, that was a lot of money for a gallery to be making. She was this powerhouse woman. She was something else. And when she liked an artist like Fritz Schulder, she'd buy them a Rolls Royce or a Corvette. She was extremely generous with many of her artists. She was just fun to be around. She liked to go shoot skeet. She loved to go bowling after openings. And all these artists just adored her because they were part of this wonderful family. 
My name's Carrie Horwich. I'm one of Elaine Horwich's daughters. All of these paintings look very familiar. It's almost like coming home. She loved equally the art world and her family world. She always made time for family. She was fun, she was energetic, she, she showed us how, I think, to be your own person. What she spoke about was just sharing, do what you want to do and do what you love, and the rest will follow. So she never thought of herself as, you know, gosh, I'm going to go out and be a woman in art. She just went out and became a great lover of artists and getting her art galleries. It's sweet memories. It's sweet memories. My name is Ann Coe. She was incredible. She accepted women on an equal footing with male artists. And that wasn't really common back then. Women were just starting to break in. Her personality was just clearly made for that because she was, you know, she was hardcore, but she was still real friendly and she had tons of people that trusted her. Elaine made us heroes, heroines. <laughs> I'm Mindy Horwich. I'm Elaine's middle child. It brings a smile to my face because I remember being at some of these shows and knowing how committed my mom was to making sure that their art was appreciated and saleable. And it's bittersweet because she's not here to enjoy it with us. I'm extremely grateful that I had her as a mom because it gave me a sense of possibility that I know we got because she was our mom and because she lived the way she lived and created what she did. And she gave us amazing, wonderful stories <laughs> and unusual things that could happen. Last night was especially fun when some of the artists who are coming in for the show were reminiscing and about every single one of them had a story about how she would pull out her gun and slap it on the table and say, I always pack heat. This is a piece by Brian Blunt. And in the book, there's many uh, stories about him. Some people got paid on time and others, she just dangled it in front of them, especially if they wanted the money. Sometimes she, as they said, just messed with them. So he tells a story in the book of how he came in to get paid and she didn't want to pay him for whatever reason, avoided him. And he jumped up on her desk and said, I'm not leaving this desk till you pay me. And she said, well, that's fine. I hope you have a lot of patience because I don't have a blanket. So he stood there for about three hours. Customers were coming into the gallery and she didn't budge. Suddenly Robert Redford came into the gallery and she quickly wrote a check and threw it at him and he got down off the desk just in time. I came in the fall of 1980 and she died in 91. So I was with her for um, 11 years. So I knew every aspect of the business firsthand I saved every invitation to every show that I worked on. I kept meticulous lists of every uh, exhibition and what location. This is like family to me. I've stayed in touch with these people, and that's how I came to write the book. You either loved her or you hated her, or there's a combination of both. People would come in, and if they couldn't buy from Elaine, they'd say, I'll come back later. They needed to brag to their friends that they bought directly from Elaine Horwich. You could have had twice as many degrees and know more about the art. 
they wanted to buy from her. And so in a way, the art was her. Julie Saucy is the author of Southwest Rising, Contemporary Art and the Legacy of Elaine Horwich. The book is the inspiration for the exhibition that is on display at the Tucson Museum of Art through June 21st. Reflecting on his career, which now spans six decades, singer, songwriter, and activist Charlie King says folk music saved his life. In 1979, a chance encounter with Tucsonan Ted Warmbrand at a folk music gathering in Connecticut became the basis for their enduring friendship. On a recent visit to Tucson, Charlie King came by the AZPM studios, and we recorded this spotlight session. It probably started um, when I got Pete Seeger's We Shall Overcome album, 1963 Carnegie Hall concert that he did. And that really <laughs> it was a different message than I was getting at home. And uh, shortly after that, I left home, went to college, and uh, had a very bizarre, interesting, radical roommate. Uh, and uh, decided not to bail out on him, hung in there with him, learned a lot from him. You were telling me before the interview that you grew up in a pretty conservative home. Yeah. And uh, the politics were not uh, progressive, let's say. <laughs> um, yeah, that may not have been the phrase that they would have been dealing with, but they were definitely conservative politics, Republican politics. You know, an Irish Catholic family that voted for Nixon instead of Kennedy. That gave you some idea of what, wow. what it was like. What's an issue that you remember confronting during those, those years that really shook your foundations and oh, made you begin to look at the world? No problem at all. It was the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was reading stories from Vietnam, you know, uh, reading about the use of napalm and, uh, and its effects on, on flesh. Um, reading Robert Bly's poem about uh, if I could see my children and, you know, that p famous picture of the kids whose clothing had been burned off and they're running down the street, you know. If, if I could see that and uh, see my children's faces in there, what would I do? You know, sort of like uh, um, the fact that we don't take it seriously enough, you know, that we keep our distance from it in order to stay sane. Um, and ROTC class, um, we, you know, had homework. We had to go home and read a, a chapter about the efficacy of bombing civilian areas in World War II. You know, and I came in the next day and I said, are we talking about the Nazis here? You know, because I had always thought, you know, we were the good guys. And uh, no, he said, no, this is what, this is, you have to do this to demoralize, you know, that. so that was it. I, you had to do two years of Rossi to graduate, but I never went back after that and, and ended up not graduating. Um, and uh, so that was it, really. You know, I became a conscientious objector. I was listening to my radio, a news report from Louisville. American Express thought they might build a factory to make and track their credit cards. 2,000 jobs for honest and hard-working folk never use the cards they make all day but they wouldn't pick a city for their plant until they had asked a question I recall from way back when to head off conflict and subversion they asked every working person are you now or have you ever been are you now or have you ever been a member of a union? Are you now or have you ever been? 
Well, I never thought I'd see the day I'd hear those words come round again. Are you now or have you ever been? Hard at work but soft on unions. That's the average Louisvillian American expressly stated in their press release. The site selection test committee recommends some other city where business rolls in profits and the unions rest in peace. And every day that question grows a little more familiar as another union battle flag descends. Ask any airline traffic tracker, copper miner, or meat packer, are you now or have you ever been? Are you now or have you ever been a member of a union? Did your father, mother, sister, brother wear a union pin? Well, I never thought I'd see the day I'd hear those words come round again. Are you now or have you ever been? Corporate planners dutifully bought the folks of Louisville a one-way nowhere fare on the American Express. Will we leave the driving to the bosses, make concessions, take the losses? This union's got the disappearing railroad blues, unless we dare to use the power we've been sitting on for years. We are strong enough to call their bluff, my friends. They can take their lousy plant and shove it. Yes, I'm union, damn proud of it. I am now and I have always been. Are you now or have you ever been a member of a union with your sisters and your brothers? Can you struggle to be free? When the question comes around, can you stand in solidarity? Say, I am now and I will always be. Are you now or have you ever been a member of a union? Are you now or have you ever been? What would you say was one of the major sources of music for you to learn songs? Was it listening to the Weaver's LPs and things like that back in the day? Or was it meeting other musicians at festivals and on the road and I've always wondered about that, about how mm-hmm. you collect that mm-hmm. uh, that archive of material. I think probably one thing that comes to mind is folk music, although it was taking me in a different direction than the direction I had grown up in, was actually a bridge between myself and my father. Um, we ended up very much apart because of my politics and his politics. But music was something that we could always share. The last time I ever saw him alive, he died quite young, uh, was a night that we stayed up late singing Irish ballads on St. Patrick's Day. Um, And then when I would go into the clubs in Boston, one of the performers who sang a lot in Boston was from here in Tucson, Michael Cooney. And Michael was uh, a real master of uh, of the American songbag. And he was quite outspoken about his opinion that all the great songs had been written. This was at the height of the sort of singer-songwriter craze, you know. So we had all these great 
songwriters, Bob Dylan, you know, being sort of at the forefront. And Michael was saying, no, no, you, you know, you don't have to write songs to come up here and sing on this stage. You know, learn songs, learn the songs that have been written over the years. And I took that quite seriously. So my apprenticeship um, was listening to as much of acoustic music as I could at that time. And that taught me a lot about how to write a song, how to construct a song. Then as I met other performers and um, worked with them, toured with them, recorded with them, I started hearing uh, new ways of using the language. I started hearing new chord progressions, new changes in the melody, and started incorporating them in my, in my own songwriting. I would point out especially the name of, a, of an unknown songwriter, relatively unknown songwriter. Can't even be Googled. Uh, his name is Dave Gordon. He died the age of 32 uh, as an Ohio-based songwriter and one of the finest musicians and songwriters I've ever met in my life. And his songwriting style has really affected me quite a lot. So it's, it's all kind of cumulative and osmotic. With that depth of knowledge, I, I have to ask, can you tell me what Diddy What Diddy means? No. <laughs> so white and fine that touched the finest linen and poured the finest wine who will remember the genteel words they spoke to name the lives of two good men a nuisance or a joke all who know these two good arms know I never had to rob or kill I can live by my own two hands And live well And all my life I have struggled To rid the earth of all such crime Judge Webster Thayer, one hand on the gavel, the other resting on the chair. Who will remember the hateful words he said, speaking to the living in the language of the dead? All who know these two good arms know I never had to rob or kill I can live by my own two hands And live well And all my life I have struggled To rid the earth of all such crime upon the switch that took the lives of two good men in the service of the rich who will remember the one that gave the nod or the chaplain standing near at hand to invoke the name of
will remember this good shoemaker. We will remember this poor fish peddler. We will remember all the strong arms and hands that never once found justice in the hands that rule this land. And all who know these two good men know they never had to rob or kill. Each had lived by his own two think that in our current political climate that folk music is becoming more important to people? Are you seeing more turnout to concerts and things? Well, certainly not my concerts. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's changed. The kind of music that I've been doing most of my life is music that thrives on political engagement. Um, and when people have something that they feel passionate about, they're going to find some expression. And culture is, is our option. You know, that's, that's our window. I think about going to the South after the last presidential election and talking to old African-American church women, you know, and saying, like, what do we do now? And they say, honey, this is nothing. <laughs> You'll weather this storm. So... This too will pass. I think uh, Lee Hayes said that about his kidney stones. <laughs> For over 40 years now, I've been traveling around the United States doing concerts for people who are working at a grassroots level to create political change to make the world a better place. So that's my picture of America. Uh, good people everywhere trying to make the world a better place. And... Uh, I've just recently written a song that was inspired by one of the last speeches that Martin Luther King gave. It was after the Riverside Church speech. It was after people started bailing out on him and saying, you know, this poor people's campaign is not going to work. Um, it's going to alienate our allies in the White House, you know, and uh, saying that uh, coming out against the war in Vietnam, that's the worst thing you could do, you know. And, and, and Martin Luther King said, when you stand up for justice, you can never fail. We can go down to Washington and we can say, we demand economic justice. And if we don't get it, they're the ones who failed. We're not the ones that failed. So I was just immediately drawn to that statement. When you stand up for justice, you can never fail. It's very Gandhian. Uh, you can't control the result of what you do. You can only be responsible for the actions that you take. And uh, I, I get a lot of hope and uh, courage out of the idea that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, and I don't believe that uh, corruption and greed and death-dealing uh, personalities and ideologies will have the last word. Uh, I come from a, a spiritual tradition and a political tradition that tells me uh, that uh, life and, and goodness and justice will have the last word. 
Martin set his heart on the poor people's campaign. His allies and advisors told him, don't go down that trail. The work's too hard, the road's too long, you'll come back empty-handed. He said, when you stand up for justice, you can never fail. You can never fail. You can never fail. Take up the task at hand, lift your voice and take a stand. Cause when you stand up for justice, you can Martin spoke his truth to power about the war in Vietnam. His enemies and friends all told him stick to civil rights. He listened to his conscience and he knew the work of peace cannot be separate from justice. It is all one. Take up the task at hand, lift your voice and take a stand. When you stand up for justice, you can never fail. The arc of the moral universe is long, and we don't know what that journey might entail. But it bends towards justice, and if you stand up for justice, Martin said that you can never fail. Congress promises the moon, but you know they don't deliver. Business offers nothing if it isn't up for sale. The president will fail. He's a taker, not a giver. But when you stand up for justice, you can never Take up the task at hand, lift your voice and take a stand. When you stand up for justice, you can never fail. This spotlight session with Charlie King was recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood. You can listen to the songs at azpm.org. And thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.